So we're finishing up our five-week series on the life of David, and we're finishing on a high note by talking about David and Bathsheba. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sorry, kids. Um, yeah, if you're, I think if you're 12 or under, then you could take the next few moments and just draw me a picture of Pastor Jared. I think that'd be great. I would love to see those. <laughs> and the rest of us, we're gonna talk about this story. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a sad story. It's not fun to read. It's painful to read the story. And watch David fall so quickly so far. Uh, at the same time, it's a sad story. At least, I guess, on the other side, it's captivating. It's got all the elements of a story that will draw you in. I mean, it's got drama, suspense, betrayal, temptation, murder. I mean, it's got everything in a story. It's just kind of like you can't believe this is happening as you're reading along, as you're following along. But the question is what... What can we learn from the story? We need to look at it so we can figure out, can we learn something from this story, which is important. Now, just so we'll frame it, this story happens in the midpoint of David's life. He's kind of at the pinnacle of his career and life. He's, he's on the top. His reputation is solid. He's, he's known throughout the land. He's, he's done a lot of amazing things at this point in his life. He's, he's unified the kingdom of Israel. He is the king. There's no one questioning that at this time, and he's He's conquered a lot of our other nations. He's won a lot of battles. He's, at this point in his life, he's a hero. I mean, he's a legitimate hero. When he, when he defeated Goliath, he kind of burst on the scene, and he was heroic at that time, but his life just played out the same way and, and just followed suit, and he is now uh, the hero of Israel in a lot of ways. Some little kids in that day would have been wearing David jerseys as they're practicing on the battlefield, right? I mean, it's like, this is guy is it. He's achieved a lot. And this is, happens about when he's 45, maybe somewhere between there and 50 years old. So you could say that what happens here, some people said this is a midlife crisis. And if you want to call it a midlife crisis, that's fine. But man, this is a doozy. I mean, this is, that's a midlife crisis, what he does. You look at that and you go, man, he should, he definitely should have chosen instead the uh, souped up convertible chariot. That, that would have been a better option than what he does. But we gotta look at the story so we can learn from it. What is God trying to teach us? And so the story is found, 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you got your Bibles, you can turn, follow along. The words will be on the screens on the back of your worship guide. 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse one, says this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. One of the biggest uh-oh moments in the Bible. That's not what David wanted to hear in that moment. And the story, that's the heart of it, and then it begins to spiral from there. But before you and I look at the story and the, like really the details of it and what happens next, I think it's really important that we look at how the story starts. 
Because the writer of the story, as he recorded this for all of us in the Bible, right, God inspired the writer to record it this way. He doesn't start the story with just a simple statement of a, one day the king was at the palace and he was walking around. It doesn't start that way. He's very strategic in how he starts the story. He tells us that it was in the spring and particularly the season in the spring when kings go out to war with their armies. That's what kings do. But David sent his army to the battle. He sent them under the command of Joab, the commander, and and he stayed in Jerusalem. So uh, the writer of the story is telling us how it starts this way in order to prove a point, in order to make a point with us that David was not where he was supposed to be when the story begins. He's not where he's supposed to be because he's not embracing and fulfilling his purpose. This is the time of year when this is what kings do. Kings go lead their troops into battle. Kings are out front inspiring their troops. They're leading the way so that the troops say, yeah, our king is with us. They're uh, on the front lines deciding the military strategy. That's what kings do. That's what they're supposed to do during this time. That's why he says it that way. Kings Their purpose is to lead their troops during this season out in the battle, and David's not doing that. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's not fulfilling his purpose. And because he's not fulfilling his purpose, he finds himself in a lot of trouble. And that's important for us to look at because that's exactly the same for us. When we are not fulfilling our purpose, when we're not embracing our purpose, we find ourselves in a lot of trouble. It's really easy to get into trouble when you take your eyes off of your purpose. Now, in order to understand that, we have to understand this truth that all of us have a purpose, that we all have a God-given purpose on this planet, that we have something that God has given us to do, that we're here for a higher reason than just our existence. We're here because God has given every single one of us a specific purpose. And that's true throughout scripture. The way we say that here at Lake Point Church is we say it like this, share Christ and build believers. That's our purpose. That's our purpose as a church, and the church is the body of Christ. We are the people of God. We are the church, and our purpose for being here is to share Christ and build believers, to do everything that we can to point people to Jesus, to make much of Jesus, to provide ways for people to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ, and to build believers, to build up his church, to serve in the body of Christ. We have a purpose. Every single one of us does. And when we take our eyes off of that, when we don't embrace the purpose that God has for us, here's what happens. God gets smaller and and the lure of the world gets bigger and bigger in our eyes. And the lure of the world presents itself as a whole different set of purposes for us to live for. It says, hey, the purpose of life is to accumulate a lot of things, to get a lot of possessions, or the purpose of life is your own pursuit of happiness and enjoyment. And we lose sight of the purpose that God has for us, and then we start to see all these other things that we could live for, and we get way off track. And temptation grabs a hold of us. It gets a foothold in our life. Sin gets a foothold in our life because we've taken our eyes off of Jesus. We've taken our eyes off of the purpose. But when we embrace God's purpose, when we understand that every single day that God gives me is the day to make much of him, to bring glory to him by sharing Christ and building believers in every circle that I can do that, then here's what happens. God gets bigger and bigger and bigger in our eyes and the world and its lures and temptations and all those other purposes, they get smaller and smaller as we fix our eyes on Jesus. 
We all have a specific purpose. Share Christ, build believers, and then God uniquely wires us so that we can play that out in different ways. He's gifted us with a spiritual gift. On top of that, talents and abilities and personality wiring so that we can play our role in building up the body of Christ and our role in how we share Christ with the world around us. And then it plays itself out in every season. Doesn't matter what season of life you are. If you're a child, if you're a teenager, if you're a college student, if you're a young adult, it doesn't matter all the way. No matter how old or young, no matter what season of life, you have a purpose from God. Share Christ, build believers. If you're married, if, if you have kids, if you're single, it doesn't matter. Every single one of us in that season, we have a circle of influence where we can share Christ. We have a circle of influence where we can build up his body, build believers. When we take our eyes off of that, we find ourselves wandering into trouble. And that's what David did this day. He's not embracing the purpose. He's the anointed king of Israel. God anointed him as king. God selected him as king. And kings go out to war during the season and David's sitting on a couch. He's taking some time off. He's sitting this one out. And he found himself in a lot of trouble. He found himself on that couch and he's not with the army, he's not with the, the men he's supposed to be with and so he's bored. Late one afternoon, just one afternoon, he gets up off the couch and decides to go for a walk, decides to do some sightseeing, if you know what I mean. And he finds himself in a lot of trouble because God's small in that moment and temptation is big. And he gives in to the temptation because his eyes are off of his purpose with God. And when Bathsheba says that she's pregnant, then David's world starts spinning out of control and he has to figure out what to do. He's got to do something to fix this situation. It's gonna end up very badly if he doesn't. And he comes up with a plan on the surface. If you're just following the story, it looks like a pretty good plan. He sends for Uriah. He sends for her husband. He's at the battle. He sends a messenger, says, hey, have, have Uriah come back and report to me about the battle. And so Uriah comes back reports to King David, gives him a report about how the battle's going with the Ammonites. David says, thank you so much for that report. Hey, don't, hu don't hurry back to the battlefield. You can go back tomorrow. Why don't, you, why don't you go to your house tonight? Say hello to your wife. Nope, never mind, don't do that. Um, not for me. Just go visit your wife, eat a good meal, go back to the battle tomorrow. Your eye won't do it. Uriah says that his band of brothers that he fights with, that he serves with, they're all on the battlefield. He says, they don't get to go to their house tonight. They don't get to see their wife tonight, and so I will not betray my brothers by going to my house and seeing my wife, and he sleeps on the ground outside the king's gate that night. David says, oh, that didn't work. I need to, I need to do something else, and so he, he keeps Uriah another day he says, we're gonna have a party, I want you to be at the party, and he keeps filling Uriah's wine glass. His goal is at this point, if I get him drunk, maybe he'll forget his vow and his commitment and he'll go to his house tonight. But it doesn't work either. Uriah finishes at the party and he still won't betray his brothers, he sleeps on the ground again outside the king's gate. And it's that point of the story that David realizes his plan A is not gonna work and he has to shift to plan B. Plan B is bad. He writes a, a, a letter. He writes a command to Joab. He says, hey, when Uriah gets back, I want you to put him at the point of the battle where the fighting is the fiercest, and when it gets really, really fierce, I want you to pull your men back so that Uriah will die in the battle. 
and then he seals that note, and the ironic part of the story, he hands that note to Uriah, and he says, take this back to Joab, and Uriah, who was faithful to David, and faithful to Israel, and faithful in every way in the story, he unknowingly takes his own death sentence back to his commander. And Joab reads the note, he follows the command of the king, puts Uriah in that part of the battle, they pull back, and Uriah dies in the battle, and, and some other men around him. News gets back to Bathsheba that her husband has died in the battle, and she goes into a period of mourning, and at the end of that period of mourning, it says that David took her into his house and made her his wife. And then several months later, she had a child. The child was born. And in one of the biggest understatements in the Bible, it says at the end of chapter 11 that what David had done displeased the Lord. <laughs> you think? <laughs> God's not pleased with this at all. And I think it's important just for clarity's sake that we talk about that a little bit because adultery's the heart of the issue. But if you just stop and think about everything that just played out, I mean, first he was walking on the roof and he coveted his neighbor's wife. And because he coveted his neighbor's wife, he committed adultery with her. And it, because of that, because she got pregnant, he murdered his friend, Uriah. And he did that in order to steal his wife from him and then he lied about it to cover it all up. He, half of the 10 commandments he broke right there. And I, I'm just betting that at some point in David's life when he was younger, his parents told him, don't do any of these things, so he also disobeyed his parents. So oh, six out of 10. <laughs> in one chapter of scripture, the man after God's own heart broke all these commandments, all so fast, so far. And God is not pleased. And God's not gonna leave David there, he's gonna make things right. And God has a prophet in the land, his name is Nathan, and God sends Nathan to David, the king of Israel, to confront him with his sin. And Nathan has an audience with David. He comes into David's court and he says, hey, David, I have a, I have a story for you. I have a, I have a case for you. I, I, wanna, I wanna present something to you. Maybe get your help, your advice on it. And Nathan tells him the story. He says, there was a very wealthy man and the, the man had a lot of possessions. He had a lot of sheep, he had a lot of lambs, and he lived next to a man who was extremely poor. The man was so poor, he could only afford to buy one little lamb. And he bought that lamb, and he nurtured it and cherished it, he kind of raised it alongside of his children, almost like another child in his house. He loved that lamb, and the rich man had a guest come in to stay with him, and the rich man didn't want to take one of his own lambs to prepare a meal for his guest, and so what the rich man did is he went and got the lamb from the poor man, that one lamb he owned. He took that lamb, and he prepared it as a meal for his guest. Nathan's telling that story, and David's blood starts to boil, and his response just kind of bursts out. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse five, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David's response is really, really interesting. The second part of his response is a law response. It's, it's what the law required. In Exodus 22, it says that if somebody steals a sheep and he's caught, he's supposed to, he has to give four sheep back as payment for that crime. 
And so David knows the law. I mean, we know that from all the Psalms he wrote. He knows the law. He loves the law. And he knows it enough to say the man should give four lambs back to the guy. But his first response is emotional. His first response is anger. His first response, he's like, the man who did that deserves to die. No, no he doesn't. Have you stopped and thought about that? He, he doesn't deserve to die. He stole a lamb. You don't kill him for stealing a lamb. That's excessive. It's over the top. Four lambs is a start of making it right, but to put the man to death, that's too much. Even in that day, that's too much. David's response tells us something about his heart. It tells us he, he really wants to jump on the side of justice because he's living with guilt and shame. He's living with the weight of guilt on his shoulder, so when he sees a chance to be right and be just, he jumps way on the other side of that thing. But Nathan was telling the story to kind of set a trap. And when David responded that way, Nathan, he springs the trap. Verse seven, Nathan said to David, you are the man. David, you're the man in the story. God knows what you did. You stole Uriah's one wife. You have a lot of wives. You stole his wife, and then you killed him by the hand of the Ammonites. David, you're the man in the story. You're the one who sinned. You sinned against God. He just confronts him and shows him his sin and, and reminds him that God sees everything. He knows that sin. Nathan confronts him with that truth. I, I want to I I take a timeout right now. I don't know how many timeouts they give me. I'm going to take this as a full timeout. Um, <laughs> and I want to say this about Nathan. We need a Nathan. I need Nathans in my life. I'm, I desperately need Nathans in my life who are willing to tell me when I'm out of bounds. I desperately need Nathans to come and tell me about the blind spots in my life that I can't see. I can't do all the things I'm asked to do or responsible for without people that will tell me when I'm not seeing something, when I'm stepping way far out of bounds, when I'm acting like an idiot, I, and I do that. I need somebody to come and tell me that. We all need Nathans in our lives. Someone we've given permission to speak truth to us in love even when it hurts. Even when we don't want to hear it, we, we need Nathans in our life. Who, who is that for you? Who have you given permission to speak to you and tell you when you're out of bounds and tell you about the blind spots? I, if you're married, I know your wife already has permission, right? She already, she already does that for you, and your, if your wife, your husband does that for you. I'm talking about someone you'll listen to. <laughs> no, no, here's what I mean. Someone that you've given permission to is someone you'll listen to. You don't have to tell them, hey, I, I'm giving you permission. You just, when somebody speaks to you that way, you listen. You take heed because you know that they, they, they're doing that for your benefit because they care about you. We cannot do this without people like that in our lives. Who is that for you? We need a Nathan and we need to be Nathan. He's such an amazing figure in the story. He, his courage is outstanding. He's going to the king of Israel, the most powerful man around, and he's gonna confront him with his sin. 
Nathan could have lost his life that very moment for doing this. But God told him to go, and so he's obedient, even if it's gonna cost him something. And we need to be Nathan. We need to be willing to be obedient and have hard conversations with people, even if it costs us something. And let me just tell you, let me be honest, some of those conversations might cost you a relationship. But because God wants us to, because God commands us to, because we're supposed to be people that speak truth, we do it anyway, even if it costs us something. But he doesn't, he doesn't just come in. Nathan has courage with compassion. He doesn't just come in pointing fingers at David. David, you're a murderer, you're an adulterer, you're a liar. He doesn't just come in and throw his accusations. He comes in and he says, hey, David, guess what? I, I have a story to tell you. He comes in low and he comes in humble. And the magic's not in him telling a story. We don't have to come up with stories when we confront people. The magic is that he tells David this. He confronts David with the truth in a way that David will hear it. And if you've been around Lake Point for a while, you know that our, our pastor, Pastor Steve, calls this carefronting instead of confronting. That we confront people in a way that they can hear it with love as our motive because we care about them and, and we have to be humble and low when we do that. That our goal is for them to listen so we don't come in pointing fingers and throwing out accusations. We come in low and we, we speak the truth in love as we care for it. And guys, we need to be Nathan more often than we are. We need to be willing to risk some things to speak the truth, but we need to do that because we care about the person and we want to see them living for God. We want to be obedient in that process. We need a Nathan. We need to be a Nathan. Now, back, back to the story. What do, you, what, what do you learn from this story? I mean, what, what can we possibly learn from this story other than the obvious, like, hey, don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't even think about it. Have you ever become discouraged because the good guys in the Bible become bad guys in the end? Like a lot of them turn out to be bad guys. Have you ever thought about that? Like this is David. We've talked about him for weeks as this man after God's own heart, passionate, writer of the Psalms, loves the law of God. And then here he is breaking all these commandments, falling to this depth. The, the good guys in the Bible end up in so many ways disappointing us and looking like bad guys. Abraham, the man of faith, this great man, father of our faith, he didn't trust God enough to protect his wife, so he kept lying about who she was, said she was a sister, got him and her in lots of trouble in Egypt. Moses, he, he's this great leader of the people, but he's killed an Egyptian because he tried to do it his way instead of God's way at first. It's delayed the whole process 40 years. And then in the end, when he's supposed to lead them to the promised land, Moses doesn't get to go in because of his disobedience. As great as he was, he still failed. You have all these characters in the Bible that are supposedly, they look like good guys. Yeah, be like those guys. And then they, they do what David here and they fall off. And it can get discouraging. And I think the reason it gets discouraging for us is because we tend to look at the Bible as if it's a book about us to tell us what we need to do in order to please God. And so we look at all the stories and we go, okay, what can we learn from this about how we should live in order to please God? That is not what the Bible is about. It is not a book basically about us to tell us how to live to please God. Here's what the Bible's about. It's basically and ultimately a book that teaches us about God, how great he is, and what he has done for us. That's what the Bible's about. 
And when you get that truth, then every story has to fit into that. It begins to fit in. You start to see how it fits in, that all these stories, that we get to see the failures of people because it's not really about them. These, these people are not really examples for us as much as they're supposed to teach us first about, about God and who he is. And this story, as I wrestle with that, it's really interesting because what this story does is it first has to teach us something about ourselves so that we can learn something about God. This story first teaches us this about ourselves. It teaches us that we are all capable of the worst. That every single one of us is capable of doing what David did. Maybe you're in the room and you're listening and you you think, yeah, I I know, I've, I've done some of these things. So you know that, but there's some of you that are sitting in the room going, whew, can't believe that David did that. I would never do that. And it's easy for us to think that we would never do something like this. We would never go that, that, that low. David's a man after God's own heart. Moses is the leader of God's people. Abraham is the father of our faith. Do we think we're better than them? Do you and I think that we're better than David? That we would never fall like that? The Bible says take heed when you think that you stand lest you fall because we're all capable of this. Every single one of us, starting with me, we're capable of everything that David did and even more. And David had to understand that truth so that he could understand what God was doing here and we have to understand that truth to see what this story's really about because here's what it's really about. God relentlessly pursues us to forgive and restore us. That's what the story's teaching us. That's what God's doing in the story. He's showing us the filthy laundry in David's life so that we will be reminded that we're all capable of this, but God pursues us relentlessly because he wants to restore us, he wants to forgive us. Here's what it's telling us, that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's who our God is. No matter what you've done, As bad as David or worse or not quite, God is pursuing you to restore you and to forgive you. That's what he's doing here. That's why he sends Nathan. And David gets that. And and, in verse 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, David said to Nathan in response to that confrontation, I have sinned against the Lord. He gets it. I failed. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Some of you love to highlight things in your Bible and you've been waiting (laughs) because there's been nothing in here worth highlighting. There it is. The Lord will put away your sin, has put away your sin, and you shall not die. That's what God was doing. He's reminding David, I'm pursuing you to forgive and to restore I don't want you to live with that guilt anymore. I want you to be set free from that. I want to restore you. You confessed and now I've put that sin away. Just so we're clear, this is not a picture of God saying sin is no big deal. Oh, I know that was a lot of bad things. Let's just put it over here on the side. Don't talk about it and let's just go on. That's not how God does things. In fact, in Romans chapter three, in the New Testament, we get information about this. We get clarity on this. In Romans three, Paul is talking about justification that Christ accomplished for us and propitiation that he the wrath of God. 
And in that, he says that God was demonstrating his righteousness on the cross with Jesus. And one of the things that he did was in his divine forbearance, and his big picture that only God has, he passed over former sins because of what Jesus was going to do. So what Paul is telling us is that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, we know this because we talk about it all the time, that his death on the cross was sufficient, more than sufficient, to cover our sin, to take our sin away, your sin and my sin. But his death on the cross was also big enough and powerful enough to go back and get David's sin as well. That David didn't die, didn't have to die, because Jesus was going to die. I mean, that's kind of what Nathan is saying to him and reminding him. You will not die. It was a reminder that you thought the man in the story that, that killed the lamb, that stole the lamb, you said he deserved to die, but David, he didn't deserve to die. But guess what? You were the man in the story, and you do deserve to die. You stole Bathsheba, and you killed her husband. You deserve to die, and God says you will not die. And now that we know Jesus and what he did, now we know that that's, that's why David doesn't die. Jesus died so David doesn't in that moment. Jesus died on that cross so that you and I don't have to die. And that, that death that we're talking about there is a spiritual death that means eternally separated from God. Jesus died on the cross taking your place and my place, paying the penalty for our sins so that we don't have to spend eternity separated from God. Instead, we get to live forever with God because of what Jesus Christ did. God pursues us relentlessly to forgive us, restore us, and we know that because of Jesus. This story, every story, points to him or reminds us of our need for him. And because of what Jesus did, we know that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love that no matter what we've done, he will restore us. That's what the story's about. That's why it's actually a pretty good story in the end. So what do we do with that truth? How do we respond to that truth? Well, David gives us that as an example. We just confess. When David's confronted with the truth of his sin and he realizes he was capable of the worst, he confesses his sin to the Lord. And so that's what we're called to do, confess. Confess means to agree with God about your sin, to agree with God that what I did was wrong and I'm capable of all the wrong, the worst. And David confesses that sin. In the story, he confesses it to Nathan, but then a little bit later, right after this, the Bible tells us that he wrote that confession down so that we can see it and we can learn from it and see what confession poured out from the heart really looks like. He wrote it down, it became a song, and we get to see it forever because that song became what we know as Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your loyal love. Because of your great compassion, wipe away my rebellious acts. Wash away my wrongdoing. Cleanse me of my sin. For I am aware of my rebellious acts. I am forever conscious of my sin. Against you, you above all I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. So you are just when you confront me. You are right when you condemn me. Look, I was guilty of sin from birth, a sinner the moment my mother conceived me. 
Look, you desire integrity in the inner man. You want me to possess wisdom. Sprinkle me with water and I will be pure. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Grant me the ultimate joy of being forgiven. May the bones you crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Wipe away all my guilt. Create for me a pure heart, O oh God. Renew a resolute spirit within me. Do not reject me. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Let me again experience the joy of your deliverance. Sustain me by giving me the desire to obey. Then I will teach rebels your merciful ways and sinners will turn to you. such a beautiful picture of what confession looks like and every plea that David made in that psalm God answered and we know God will answer it because of Jesus David wrote Psalm 32 after he wrote Psalm 51 which the orders different in our Bible than just chronological Psalm 51 Nathan came and confronted him and he and he confessed it and he wrote that down it's a beautiful song and then after he received forgiveness he wrote Psalm 32 and I want you to hear those words oh what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven whose sin is put out of sight yes what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt whose lives are lived in complete honesty when I refused to confess my sin my body wasted away and I groaned all day long Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you. Stop trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. There's nothing but joy and forgiveness and restoration on the other side of confession. Let's thank God for that. God, thank you for this truth and this story that reminds us that we are bankrupt, that we're desperate, we, we need someone to rescue us. We're capable of the worst. And thank you for how this points us and reminds us to what you did for us, that you pursue us. You want to forgive and restore us. And you provided for that with Jesus' death on that cross. So God, I pray that we would turn to you and we would confess and we would receive the restoration of joy in our lives. Thank you in the powerful name of Jesus, our rescuer, our forgiver, and our savior. Amen.